Good afternoon. <clears throat> well, the subject today is supposed to be mindfulness. I'm sure you've never heard of that before. Um, I want to uh, begin by um, saying something about uh, this bell. Um, this is a nice Japanese bell. You know, when these bells uh, used to be made, or the, the um, Stradivarius bells, they're made out of bronze. And as far as I know, I don't know a lot, um, the bells are uh, formed from a large sheet of bronze. And someone has a big hammer, and they hammer the bronze, and people on either side lift as they lift the sides as it's being hammered. And it's one piece that forms a bell, and it takes a while to make it. That's why it has these little pock marks. But this is not a bell that's made that way. The marks are just there for decoration. <laughs> <laughs> Remembrance. <laughs> Remember the when they used to do that? So, um, but this is a nice bell and it has a very good sound for an inexpensive bell. Uh, it's cast. So, but still, it has a very nice sound. So the uh, purpose of this bell is to make a sound, right? And if you notice, it has a really big mouth. So, um, I like to think of it as a song. It has a, a big mouth and it sings a song. Sings the song of um, Dharma. Um, Ma Dogen's master, Lu Jing, had a poem, made a poem, famous poem, about the wind bell. The wind bell hanging in space. Um, uh, whichever way the wind blows, north, east, south, or uh, west, um, it's always singing, zing dong, ding dong, singing the song of Pragyaparamita, singing the song of emptiness, singing the song of Dharma. So this bell sings the song of Dharma, if you let it. So we, um, we can't uh, make the bell sing. We have to allow the bell to sing. So this I will call the striker. Um, because we stroke the bell with it. We don't hit the bell because why would we want to do that? We don't want to force the sound out of the bell. We simply want the bell to sing. So we allow, we're an intermediary that allows the bell to sing. We allow the weight of this beater to match the density of this bell. And they're very nicely matched, pair. They sing together, although this one makes the sound, makes it the sound of uh, the song, and this one helps. Right? Without this one, it, that one doesn't sing. So I have to do something. I have to pick it up. Says, Please pick me up so that I can do this. So I don't make, I don't, I don't hit the bell, because that would be intruding. I simply let this beater do what it wants. And it wants to go wah, 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 wah. That's his voice. That's his song. The song of wah, 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 wah. 
It has a lot of different tones. That's high. And it goes for a long time, nicely. So, uh, my mindfulness here is to simply get out of the way and help these two um, subjects to interplay with each other. I don't call them objects. I call them subjects. Uh, we tend to think of the world as objects and we are the subject. We're the subject surrounded by a world of objects. But that's just a perception. We're actually Everything is subjective. Everything is myself. When I get out of the way, everything is myself. When I stand in the way, <laughs> everything becomes an object for this self. So, So the bell inspires us when we allow it to. The purpose of the bell is not just to tell you it's tell us that it's time to start or stop some activity, although that's why we use it, but it's also to inspire our feeling. So a nice bell inspires us it, in the morning. It uh, uh, comes along with the sunrise. At night, it puts us to sleep. So when I think of um, uh, there are many connecting, many things that we don't notice that are really making everything work. For instance, the hinges on the door. The hinges on the door allow the door to swing. The hinges are kind of out of the way, you know. They don't, they're not prominent except when they stick out but uh, they allow the door to move. And a good hinge will hold up whatever uh, it's working with and allow things to, to work and harmonize. Uh, each part of our body is separate. We think of our body as one piece, but actually it's a whole bunch of pieces. And each piece is connected by a ligament or uh, by um, um, a, a ligament or um, what are those other things? Tendons. Tendons, ligaments, and um, uh, you know, right? Oh. Muscles, joints. Muscles, joints. Yeah, and so the joints are what help us to move, right? So all these joints, we, so we're built uh, in tubes. There's this tube and this tube, this tube, this tube, four tubes, this tube. This is kind of like, more like a bowling ball. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't pay a lot of attention to the joints. We don't, you know, we should be bowing to our joints <laughs> all the time. <laughs> um, but they're, th they're the, the insignificant, um, uh, not insignificant, it, uh, um, concealed workers that allow everything to work. So, um, mindfulness is like, um, has, doesn't have any desire for anything. Mindfulness is totally neutral. It's a neutral dharma, but it allows everything to work. It's like, the joints that run through everything and allows us to be aware of how things work <coughs> objectively. <laughs> so mindfulness is totally objective. And when we talk about mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, in the body, mindfulness of um, uh, 
feelings in the feelings, mindfulness of consciousness and mindfulness of mind objects. That's a kind of stereotype. <coughs> um, I think we should be mindfulness of getting out of the way. Um, this is uh, um, getting out of the way means not depending on ego, not depending on self-centeredness. We always have this tendency to, we want to exist, and that's normal, but actually um, we can exist without very much ego, without very much self-centeredness. I want to read a little statement about mindfulness. The way of mindfulness is the objective way of viewing anything whatever. It reckons just what is present and stopping the garrulity of one's own mind, that means the talkativeness, lets the objects speak for themselves and unfold their character. So that's getting out of the way. Letting the, uh, that's a great statement. Letting the objects, which I said were subjects, get letting the, um, letting the objects speak for themselves and unfold their character. Um, we tend to make determinations. When we meet people or see people, we say, oh, this person is kind of like that, or this one's like that, and uh, so-and-so's, you know, acts in a certain way, and we create an image in our mind of what a person is or what a thing is. And uh, we assume that we know something. We don't always do that. It's nice when we don't. But to have an unassuming mind is uh, mindfulness. Actually, mindlessness is mindfulness. <laughs> um, uh, sometimes we'll have interactions with people and we'll know a certain person and then we say, well, so-and-so, you know, always acts like this. And I know what, how they're going to act. And so we prepare ourselves when we meet that person that they're going to be like this and I'm going to respond like this. So we create a set in our mind of how things really are, but then they're not always that way. To have mindfulness or mindlessness means to not have, even though you know how a person is going to act, or you think you do, or they always act that way, you always leave it open for it to be a different way. Otherwise, we can never reconcile, uh, uh, we can never really allow the other person to change, if that's what this is necessary, if that's what we want. <laughs> um, so. Uh, not assuming, sometimes I'll see a student and I know how the student is. I know how they act. And, and I, but sometimes, one time, I'll see them walking toward me and I know that the student has changed. And, I, and I'm open to that because I'm not assuming that there's always going to be the same way that I assume that they're going to be. So we have to leave ourselves open. And mindfulness is the ability to not presuppose that something's always going to be the same. Because everything is always changing and your friend will also change. And a, an astute teacher can see the change in the student right away. Aiken Roshi, I remember, talked about this. He said when um, uh, a teacher has understands how a student is doing and so forth, 
And then one day the student comes, and, and they can see the student hasn't quite um, uh, has had realization. And one day the student comes into the door, and he can see right away that the student's changed. And, and speaks to him on that level. So uh, that's having unassuming mind and real mind mindfulness to not get stuck in assuming. To, so it means always leaving your mind open, to always have an open mind all the time. That's meditation, so-called so-called meditation. Sometimes we think that samadhi is only present when we're sitting zazen. But it's not so. There's the samadhi of uh, sitting zazen, and then there's samadhi of washing the dishes, samadhi of uh, walking, samadhi of sitting down, the samadhi of uh, talking on the telephone, the samadhi of reading a book, we think that it's only in uh, meditation. But meditation, like I was saying the other night, I think I said this, <laughs> there's no difference between inside and outside. There's no difference between meditating in the zendo and uh, your daily activity outside the zendo. It's all the same when you actually practice. So practice is something continuous. That's mindfulness. Mindfulness is continuous practice. So the mindfulness, secular mindfulness, so-called, is a tool. But um, uh, religious mindfulness <laughs> is always to be present uh, in the Dharma. It's not just a tool to always be present in the Dharma. So when you leave the Zendo, it's, uh, um, in, the, in, in the meditation hall, we have a, um, uh, 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 the, the, the characteristic of practice. We say, oh, this is practice. Yeah, I recognize the Zafus and the altar and people sitting, you know, mindfully and so forth. And then when you walk outside, there's the street and the cars and the buses and the smoke and the smog and the rush. And we think that's different. But it's not different. It's all the same. It's nice to have a retreat place where you're away from all the hustle and bustle. But it's not necessarily the best place to do meditation. Best place to do meditation is in the busy street downtown, in the marketplace. That's the test of your practice, whether it's in the meditation hall or in the busy marketplace. It's all the same. So how do you do that? It's not that one side is better than the other. I just said that for emphasis. But unless you can actually do that in your daily life, uh, it's only a kind of um, uh, stress relief to, <laughs> to come to, to the... How do you relieve stress in the midst of stress? That's practice. So I don't belittle. Yeah, we all love to come. You know, I go to Tassajara where there's no cars and all that. But actually... Uh, uh, the busy Zendo uh, at Page Street in San Francisco is a great place to practice. It used to be even better <laughs> because <laughs> the freeway let off <laughs> and, and, and um, people were going up and down the street yelling and screaming, you know, and throwing bottles and, uh, uh, and it's quieted down a lot since then. It's become more gentrified. <laughs> but it was something. It's a great place to practice. How do you be mindful in those, in those circumstances? Any circumstance of your life. 
Every circumstance you meet is an opportunity to practice. That's real practice. So this is hothouse practice. It's great, you know. We're all protected. But real practice is out there in the street, in your office, dealing with the people you don't like to deal with. Dealing with, you know, politics you hate. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, I'm going to give a loving-kindness meditation. <laughs> what is love? Now, that's a big question. How, do, how are you going to give a loving-kindness meditation unless you know what love is? Because the first one is to love yourself. That's the hardest. When, when we say self-love is a delusion. <laughs> so it's, it's a kind of um, conundrum, you know. What does it mean to love yourself? Just, I love myself. I love <laughs> <laughs> that's, always been a di that's the most difficult one. Then you can go on. To, you, know, you can always express love to the world. But expressing love to yourself, what does that mean? So the word love has many connotations and meanings, and which meaning is the meaning. So um, I'll talk a little bit more about that tomorrow. But today we're still on, <laughs> I think we're still on um, mindfulness. <laughs> so uh, I'm going to finish the sentence. So it says, also by its patient pursuit of the meaning of things, its readiness to see every side of any thought or experience, and by its breadth and tolerance, it predisposes the mind to receive the impressions of truth, induces inner pliancy, and the mood of spiritual receptivity necessary for higher intuition. That's a great sentence, but I have to unpack it a little bit. Pretty long. Um, so also by its patient pursuit of the meaning of things. Patient pursuit of the meaning of things means to not uh, um, be hasty about assuming what the meaning of things is. And it's readiness to see every side of any thought or experience. When, if you've ever read Dogen Zenji, it's very difficult to read because he looks at everything from every side. and uh, examines everything from <laughs> every side and, uh, and, and ends up in what we think of as such an illogical examination uh, that uh, we lick over our mind and just enjoy it. So he says, <laughs> it's readiness to see every side of any thought or experience. So when we're dealing with um, people, we tend to be reactive. There's a difference between being reactive and responsive. When somebody's, you know, really angry at us and, and uh, overwhelming, we tend to react, either by hiding or by striking back. That's the uh, reaction, to strike back. But actually, that simply um, ties us to this other person. We become attached to the other person through reaction. But to actually step back, if you have the time to examine, our mind works very fast. What is it when we step back and respond, 
that means we take the time to reconnoiter and make a response. So response is different than a reaction. So to be mindful of making a response instead of just reacting. And to investigate, well, what is it that's behind this? Why is this happening? Who is this person? You may know who they are, of course, but what's there's something behind this that's driving the person and it's taken hold of the person and the person is helpless to act in any other way. So to actually help the person is really important. That's dharma. Instead of um, uh, striking back, how do we see the situation and help the person in a way that they don't know you're helping, <laughs> but they think they're doing it. That's the best way. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, so if you know, if we want uh, peace, it's very difficult to achieve because we're always reactive. So it's always necessary to be mindful to be in that place where you're examining causes and conditions and how something happens and not and uh, be able to let go of uh, our own um, uh, uh, uneasiness. So we can only do that by practicing. There's when we practice in difficult situations, then we learn how to deal with difficult situations. Sometimes someone will say, um, how do I stop being angry? You know, if, how, how can I stop uh, not acting in an angry way to somebody? Well, I'm not going to tell you that because it won't help. You have to practice not being angry. You have to practice not being selfish. You can't just do it. You may be able to do it a little bit, but you fall back into your old habit because you haven't established the habit of not overcoming anger. You haven't established the habit of um, uh, uh, not being avaricious, and so forth. So we have to practice these um, modes so that when something happens, we're prepared. So the mindful practice is to be able to see all sides of a situation as practice. To practice non-harming so that when the situation comes up, we know what to do. Just automatically know what to do. And when someone attacks us, we know what to do. And when somebody hurts us, we know where to go. So, zazen practice prepares us for all that. When we're, when we have a problem, when we have trouble, mindfulness says, "Go to here, go to your hara." You know the word hara. Hara means hara is just below the navel. I'm not going to tell you how many inches. But it's right down here where your breath is. Breath is at the hara. So um, when we establish ourselves there through deep breath, deep breathing, in zazen, whenever we have a problem, whenever we have trouble, hurt or, or pain or we can't stay or we can't go, we go to the hara. And that's the key of sea, the sea of key. <laughs> the, uh, the, it's also called rice paddies in the <coughs> east. <laughs> it's the place where of refuge, basically, because it's the it's the entrance, it's the door of, of intuition. And um, it's the uh, um, 
the center. We always go to, when you go when you're when you need refuge, you go to the center, right? You go back to the fort when the Indians come. <laughs> Rest paddies. That means, um, you know, uh, uh, the wonderful place of. Uh, rice paddy is like a symbol of uh, home or um, nourishment. Yeah. We, we we don't relate to that so much. We, we relate to wheat fields. But um, when you go to the hara, then uh, you can empty your mind. That's how you empty your mind. It's just by being one with your hara. It's the place of spiritual strength, actually. So we have the mind, the thinking mind. That's one uh, center. And we have the heart, you know, which is feelings. And we have uh, the uh, hara, which is uh, intuition and strength, intuitive strength. So uh, uh, this is strength that draws, this is the place that draws strength from the universe, not just from our thinking mind or our feelings. Feelings are uh, wonderful, but they're fickle. You know, you can feel this way one moment and you can feel the opposite way the next moment about the same thing. And the mind uh, is great for thinking, but thinking only takes us so far. Thinking comes after intuition. Intuition tells us um, uh, this from the, something from the source and informs the mind and the mind develops what the intuition reveals and the feelings have uh, have feelings about it <laughs> but this is the this is the fundamental place the hara um, and w when you go there then you feel at home people say sometimes I, when I, well, as soon as I started sitting zazen, I felt at home. You know that? Maybe you did too. Well, where is that place where you feel at home? You felt at home because you were centered on Nahara. That's home, home base. So when all, when the Hara and the, and the, and the, and the thinking mind, the consciousness and the feelings are harmonized, then uh, you're at ease. So we're always looking for the harmony of those three. If when the mind, when the thinking mind is um, uh, disassociated from the hara, from the intuition, then it can think up all kinds of things and doesn't have a direction except its own infatuation because there's, there's no anchor for the mind. And as we see, you know, this, we have these destructive forces in the world that are not anchored to the source. And so they, uh, we invent all kinds of things because the mind is way far ahead of our ability to deal with it. We now have robots, which are a model of the mind, only they're far more efficient. <laughs> uh, so uh, there has to be some anchor, some... Uh, things get out of hand because we're not um, anchored at the source. So all of our intuition all, uh, um, has to be anchored, has to come from here. So that's why we the hara. Uh, and when we sit in zazen, this is the center of our body. Um, just below the navel, so to speak. <clears throat> and we breathe into it. That's where our breathing takes place. And the legs are like roots. And the trunk is like a tree. 
And these are the limbs and the fingers are the leaves. So if you go a little bit above the um, hara to the solar plexus, the solar plexus, I think of them as the same really, but physically the solar plexus is a little higher. Solar means sun, right? So this is the um, this is the the source of light. We say um, everything is a manifestation of light. So, but it's not what we th- light is not what we think it is. We have an idea about what light is. <laughs> so, light is. Uh, um, Radiant light is actually our life. This is the solar plexus. This is the um, source of light, which we call intuition. And then this is the, uh, these are the limbs. So these are the the, um, satellites. The head is a, a big satellite. You know, it's got a going around it. And the hands are satellites, and the feet and legs are satellites. And this is the center. And they all, all of our satellites are rotated. They don't, even though they don't go around, they, they are around the sun spot. And so we're a kind of microcosm of, or a model of the universe. Um, so, when we're mindful of being of our hara, this is where our breath takes place also. So everything meets, all the parts of our body meet here and come out from here. The umbilical cord comes out from there. So uh, that's the, the place of true nourishment. And that's called uh, spiritual security. So we're always mindful of where our breath is. Whether you're sitting zazen, whether you're walking, whether you're working, whether you're in the kitchen. Um, Kitchen is a great place to practice and express mindfulness. You have five or six people working in a small space with knives and pots and fire and uh, uh, food and slippery, this and that. And they all have to harmonize by working around each other so that um, uh, they don't kill each other, right? (laughs) And and, uh, emotionally, they have to harmonize. (laughs) <laughs> Harmonizing emotionally is really can be very difficult because when you're working with people like that over a period of time, you start criticizing. You know, I want it this way. She, why does she always do that? You know, it, so um, you have to be careful. So this is the place of mindfulness in the kitchen, and it's the, this the place of where uh, everyone should practice there at some point. Because it's the it's the greatest educational place to practice. When we're by ourselves, it's much easier, you know. When we do stuff by ourselves, it's easier. But when we're doing something together, it's hard. Those things come up. Um, when you're practicing here in this room, we're all looking this way. But in the sendo, we zen zen sendo we're around the periphery. So we're looking at each other in a different way. Actually, we're looking at the wall, but... <laughs> 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 but there are times when we are, and then we look at the person next to us, you know, God, how come they always do this? You know? <laughs> or this. <laughs> and little things become really big things. They're really nothing at all, but we create things in our mind. So we have to be careful, be mindful that we 
that we realize that we're creating things in our, creating images in our mind that are simply uh, ridiculous. To drop it, there's a saying, a monk is, the, the, the practice of a monk is continu to continuously let go, give up. Continuously giving up, continuously giving up and letting go. And arising fresh on each moment. That was the practice of my teacher, to arise fresh on each moment. Each moment, allowing each moment to arise free of um, uh, self-made problems. So everything we do, moment by moment, should be mindful. Mindfulness is just simply our mode of being. It's not a practice that we do, although we do practice it. Simply a mode of being, always aware of how we're attaching ourselves, how we're creating karma, and how we're letting, letting go and giving up and being open on each moment. So sitting zazen, you know, is to open up yourself and letting go of feelings. <laughs> you know, we hang on to feelings. Feelings are wonderful, you know, but they're, um, we don't need to hang on to them unless it's necessary. So we have all this baggage, you know, we're creating baggage, feelings, but the physical feelings and then there are mental feelings. So, to practice feelings, the awareness of feelings, mindfulness of feelings in the feelings. If a physical feeling comes up, to be aware of that feeling and give it just enough um, attention to let it go. And when you're practicing a, when you're aware of a uh, uh, good feeling or bad feeling, so to speak, to give it just enough attention to recognize it and let it go. And rise up new in each moment. Except that our mind needs entertainment. Just craves entertainment. What will I do now? So, um, um, it's very difficult to let, let things go. We hang on. It doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, you know. If we can't love, then we hate. It's the same energy. goes back and forth, depending on our feelings. I loved him yesterday, but now I hate him today. <laughs> I loved him five minutes ago, now I hate him. <laughs> it just, you know, you get pulled around by love and hate, good and bad, right and wrong. Just let go of all of it. And that's what we're doing, actually. And that's our mindfulness. And then we can be comfortable, <laughs> maybe. It's to find our comfort within our discomfort. To find our freedom, actually, within our whatever's happening. That's how you practice in the world. No matter what's happening, you find your freedom. You always know where you are. And there's, a pl there's an indestructible place. And that's the place that we have to settle. I want to finish the sentence. So, 
by its patient pursuit of the meaning of things, this is talking about mindfulness, its readiness to see every side of any thought or experience, and by its breadth and tolerance, it predisposes the mind to receive the impressions of truth, induce inner pliancy. Inner pliancy means the ability to um, uh, be receptive and malleable. We say, uh, my teacher used to talk about soft mind. We have to have a soft mind. Soft doesn't mean, you know, um, squishy. It means pliant and malleable. So that uh, we can receive without being blown over. It's like grass bending in the wind. No matter how hard the wind is, the grass always bends over. It doesn't get um, break. That's malleableness. <clears throat> and inner pliancy. And the mood of spiritual receptivity necessarily necessary for higher intuition. So it opens the mood, opens your mood to accept, uh, to receive spiritual, spiritual, whatever that is. We say, you know, our practice is not spiritual. And then we say, we don't have a spiritual practice. There's no difference between spiritual and mundane. It's all one piece. We don't separate, say, this is spiritual and this is material. It's all one piece. It's not a spiritual practice. Um, also, body and the mind are not two different things. Mind is body, body is mind. It's all one piece. So we don't divide in that way, even though we use those terms as a convenient way of talking about things. I'm going to read you one thing to end. You may or may not like. This is from uh, a koan from uh, Muman, Master Muman's uh, collection, which I read. I read the koan uh, the first day, my first talk. This is called um, um, Zuigan calls Master. The priest Zuigan called Master to himself every day and answered himself, Yes. So this is not a question. He didn't say Master. He said Master. And then he said, Yes. You say yes? Yes. Then he would say, be aware. And reply, yes. Don't be deceived by others. No, I won't. That's the on. And then Master Muman has a comment. He says, Old Zuigan buys himself and sells himself. He brings forth lots of angel faces and demon masks and plays with them. Why? Look. One kind calls, one kind answers. One kind is aware, one kind will not be deceived by others. If you still cling to understanding, you're in trouble. If you try to imitate Zuigan, your discernment is altogether that of a fox. Um, so when Zuigan calls master, he's when he says, "Master," everything else falls away. Who is he talking to? And then he answers himself, yes. I call this, um, uh, he drops the self by affirming the self.
<clears throat> look, one kind calls, one kind answers. One kind is aware, one kind will not be deceived by others. So he has this dragon, you know, his angel mask, dragon mask, is like one calls, it's a kind of drama, you know, he's creating a little drama. The koan's creating a little drama for us. It's like a puppeteer with two hands. One hand he's got one puppet, the other hand he's got another, but they're the same puppet. <laughs> so one calls, the other answers. So, don't be deceived by others means, actually doesn't mean, don't be deceived by the others in your mind. Don't be deceived by um, uh, all those false elements in your own mind that are trying to deceive you, <laughs> that are um, telling you things that uh, are not really so. We have them. They're called our demons. Um, so if you try to, if you still cling to understanding, you're in trouble. Um, understanding means uh, using your consciousness, basically. You don't know. Not knowing. Here you're talking about, we depend on our understanding, but actually we can't depend on our understanding, ultimately. Ultimately, we can't depend on anything except our heart. <laughs> Uh, so, but if you try to act like, if you try to act like Zuigan, if you copy him, you're just a fake, right? But to be inspired by his spirit is not to imitate. So we all have to find our own way. So then Muman says, students of the way do not know the truth. They only know their own deluded consciousness up to now. This is the source of endless birth and death. The fool calls it the original self. Um, the very deep uh, verse. I don't have time to explain it. We have to get beyond consciousness. Consciousness is associated with our thinking mind. And our thinking mind thinks that it is the original self. The thinking mind is hard to get beyond because that's all we have to, that's all we can touch. <laughs> but it's beyond the thinking mind. So when Zuligan calls Master, he's, uh, there's nothing else in the world, and that master includes everything in the, in the world, in the universe. Well, who is the master? Who, what is his true nature? When you say master, what are you talking about? How far do you go? Is it the head? Is it the thoughts? Is it, what is it, master? Who is the master? That's another koan. But, um, this is like uh, mindfulness. True mindfulness is going beyond mindfulness. But, uh, if we, there's a way of practicing mindfulness. Uh, Aiken Roshi talks about this. He says, um, getting out of bed, using the toilet, washing my hands, stepping into the shower, stepping out of the shower, dropping my body, brushing my teeth, brushing my hair, getting ready to dress, opening the door, sitting down for zazen, inhaling, exhaling. Each, this is Suigan. Each one of these acts is total, includes the whole universe. Every moment's 
activity includes the whole universe. Everything's interconnected. How could it not? We only, we, our willpower only does so much. The rest is autonomic. The blood flows through the veins. We were born. It's not your fault. You get older, it's not your fault. Don't blame yourself. It just happens. So we're, we're just inter, interconnected with the whole universe and everything is, right? So who is the master? But nevertheless, we have each moment of our life, which is unique, never come again. So we have to pay attention to each moment of our life. Is we gone? Yes, sir. Wake up. Yes, sir. I will. Don't get fooled. Okay. Um, there are many gatas, you know. Um, uh, in um, mindfulness gatas, for practice, uh, Master Dogen in Eheji uh, in the 13th century in Japan, for his monks, everything was prescribed. So here's the gata for um, brushing your teeth. He says, taking my toothbrush in hand, I vow with all beings to fully realize the subtle dharma and at, and at once attain purity. And another one says, when I brush my teeth, I vow with all beings to have the eye teeth to conquer demons and bite through all the afflictions. <laughs> and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh um, had some, but th these are, here's a couple by um, Aiken Roshi. Preparing to enter the shower, I vow with all beings to wash off the last residue of thoughts about being pure. Preparing to enter the shower, I vow with all beings to cleanse this body of Buddha and go naked into the world. <laughs> That's Zuiga. <laughs> so uh, back there in the 70s, I think or 80s, um, we were doing, uh, Aiken Roshi and uh, Thich Nhat Hanh were um, encouraging everybody to write uh, gatas for their mindfulness gatas for their practice. And we all were doing that. And uh, of course, it didn't last very long. Nobody wanted to be mindful. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, it, it, you know, it's kind of, it could seem like a little hokey thing to do, but actually, it's quite good. And Dogen has a lot of these for everything. Uh, for um, uh, you know, our Zen practice is really based on mindfulness. It's like, I can't believe it. Our kinhin, walking meditation, is like just like out of the out of the Theravada book uh, from two thousand years ago or something. You lift your foot, take a breath, take a breath. You lift your foot, put it down when you exhale, and so you're always aware of each step, how the step feels on the floor, how it feels when it's rising and how far apart each step is when you take a step, and how you hold your hands, and how you body, hold your body, like walking meditation. Um, uh, how you pay attention to your breathing, all in one act. So, um, uh, we don't think of it as mindfulness. We just think of it, this is our practice. We hardly ever use the word mindfulness. but. Um, it's there. Thought time to leave.